You're listening to the podcast of Antioch Presbyterian Church, a historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Old Antioch Podcast and Faith and Practice, where Dr. Joseph A. Pipa and I field your questions on matters of Christian faith and practice. Indeed, all of theology is practical and has practical application or else it's useless to us. And we're thankful to our listeners for giving us a a raft of interesting questions. Even though most of these were submitted anonymously today, we are looking forward to getting through them and hopefully of being some help to you. If at any point in time you want to submit a question, please visit us on our website at antiochpca.com. We'd be delighted to hear from you. Dr. Piper, would you open us with a word of prayer? Be glad to, Zach. Glorious, almighty, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we bless you and we praise your name, Lord, because you are indeed the only God, the great and glorious God. We praise you for your mercy to us in Christ, for your word and the Spirit who is our teacher. And we ask now, Lord, as we would consider these questions, that we would do so in dependence upon your Spirit. Give us wisdom. Make these uh, discussions useful for your church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Um, before we dive into questions, I do want to celebrate a few things that are going on here at Antioch. I think some of our listeners who've been praying for us will uh, appreciate hearing about this. Uh, this week, uh, the week of the recording, we are hosting Seth Jernigan, a student at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary and music director at Murraysville Community Church PCA in Murraysville, Pennsylvania, for a special concert. And we're really uh, excited about that as we continue our outreach to the community and host um, fun and Wholesome events for our covenant children and for our friends. Uh, Seth, being a student of RPTS, has a real love of the Psalms, and he's uh, put to to contemporary music um, some settings of the Psalms out of the RPCNA's Psalter, and he's done a really fine job with it. So we're looking forward to having him here with us this Thursday, um, August 24th. And then on Saturday, September 16th, we are celebrating our 180th anniversary, our 180th birthday at Antioch, which makes us the oldest church plant in the PCA, our 180th (laughs) birthday uh, is either August 17th or August 27th. Um, According to the the now defunct Cashville Post Office records, it was August 17th, um, at which point a group of of men from the Nazareth church nearby uh, signed over the the papers of incorporation and formed the church. And then according to the Nazareth Church Minutes, it was August 27th that the session there released 23 members, including those men as officers, to plant or start the Antioch Presbyterian Church here in what was was once called Cashville, still referred to as Cashville. um, um, No, this was the first time in 1843, yep, 180 years ago. The second start was 1904, and that was out of... um, out of what Antioch had become in downtown Reedville, and then a group wanted to more or less reverse plant back here in the, the old location. The interesting thing about our history, and I have to somehow simplify this uh, as I prepare this address for the 180th anniversary, is there's very little that's 
typical or by the book. It's not that they were bending rules or anything. They did everything scrupulously. It's just a very unique uh, situation followed by another very unique situation in the history of the church, even our most recent reorganization in 2020. But we're uh, delighted to be a part of what the Lord is doing here and and, uh, celebrating it in September. If you're in the area or if you want to make a special trip to the upstate, again, that's Saturday, September 16th. We're going to have two historical addresses, one on Presbyterianism in South Carolina generally, delivered by um, ruling elder Melton Duncan of Second Presbyterian Church, and then I'll give a targeted address about the history of Antioch, and then we'll share a fellowship lunch together. The next day, Dr. Piper is going to give a special Sunday school lesson on revival and what it looks like, what true biblical revival looks like in the life of a church or a denomination or or um, an area where the gospel has penetrated and, and had some measure of success. So we're uh, we're very excited about this um, landmark anniversary in the history of Antioch, and um, may the Lord continue to bless his work here for many years to come. Uh, do you have any comments before we dive into the questions, Dr. No, Piper? I'm looking forward to that, though. I think it's good. We will be honoring uh, Pastor Champion, who was faithful pastor here for decades, Lord willing, his health will allow him to be here. Other families, uh, I'm hoping the daughter of the man that was here, that's Richard's administrative assistant, I hope they can be here, and others like that. that, uh, I think I've met at least one representative from every family that has ever lived in the manse. And since the manse was built in 1982, I, I think I've met at least one Member well, that's of each pretty family. easy since one family lived there for for a very long time. Long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, a couple families did, I think. So, um, yeah, that's but good. It's no, it's going to be a great time. It, it, yeah, exactly. All right, let's move into our questions. Our first question, and like I said, a lot of these are from anonymous, and these are not questions I submitted as anonymous. These are actually from people. <laughs> but uh, anonymous asks, "What is the difference between piety and pietism? How should we respond to someone who is a true pietist?" All right. Well, these terms are often misunderstood, Zach, as you well know, and yet there's about as opposite as uh, the North and South Pole. Uh, pietism uh, basically comes out of fundamentalism and legalism. As I was thinking about this, there's a couple of, of markers. One is a disinvolvement with, with culture, with life, uh, the old saying was to polish the brass on the boat as it's sinking. It often was coupled with premillennialism and dispensationalism. But uh, just pretty much uninvolved without a real concern for the world. And then that was closely connected with the legalistic approach to Christian living that was based not upon God's Word, but upon man-made uh, rules and traditions. Couldn't we trace this whole posture and expression of the Christian life even back further before fundamentalism as a 20th century phenomenon and go back to uh, what would it be Enlightenment era Germany? Isn't that mm. really where the the beginnings of what we call modern pietism can be found? That's a good point. Yes, I think so. Historically, that was uh, an overreaction to uh, biblical. Uh, scholasticism that was in the Lutheran Church as well as in the Reformed Church. It spun out of the experimental p- 
piety of uh, the Puritans and the Continental Reform, but it surely was an aberration. And you see it, interestingly enough, because I, I agree with you, fundamentalism does have a strong pietistic strain, but you see it in, in the father of theological liberalism. In the writings of Friedrich Schleiermacher. His dedication to sentimentalism, a, a private uh, dependence on the Spirit and on the Lord, uh, but taken to, I think, an unhealthy, uh, in, an, in an unhealthy direction. I don't want to say an unhealthy extreme. We should be utterly dependent on God in everything. But emphasizing that as a, as a feeling of You know, as you say that, I mean, liberalism itself then. I mean, Schleimacher and, and so much of this was sentimentalism, even the— Pursuit of the historical Jesus ends up with a sentimentalism, not with anything that's biblical. Yeah, and it makes an irrelevant faith, uh, which ironically, pietism emphasizing aspects of the Christian life and experience really ultimately becomes irrelevant as it's divorced from uh, a more robust biblical uh, world and life view and, uh, and practice. It's good, good. So we've talked about pietism what about piety piety is just a glorious term for one who desires to uh, love serve and obey god it's calvin often uses the term in his commentaries on uh, um, the psalms um, it just comes from a heartfelt devotion uh, to uh, serve the lord well, i say heartfelt to serve the lord from the heart not to go through again painting by numbers or rote Christian living, but Calvin's Coram Deum, the heart lived before God. And so it's a vibrant aspect, should be, of, of Christianity. Uh, unfortunately, there are some modern Reformed people who have conflated the two and then mock piety by mocking pietism. And they're way off base, and what that produces is a very sterile uh, Christian experience. That was a cold uh, cynicism that comes through, mm. and I can confess that sometimes I find some of that amusing and funny, but at the end of the day, when it's pursued earnestly in attacking true piety, it's very sad, and um, and I think we do need to distinguish between piety and pietism. Now, all right, I have a couple follow-up questions. One is, can someone who is seeking to be sincerely pious inadvertently fall into pietism? And what would that look like? So how do we shepherd uh, the flock or the individual who seeks to, to express piety in a, in a way, as you've described, as Calvin would be promptly and sincerely offering up my heart unto thee, O Lord, but then falling into a, a pietism that is really an unhealthy expression of, uh, of the heart's desire. Yes, or misguided. I, I hadn't thought about it in that direction, but uh, legalism easily develops out of a true heart devotion to God so that uh, I begin to um, make myself the judge of other people's consciences in areas that should be a matter of Christian liberty. Yep. would be uh, w one area are a truncated Christian experience that if your experience is not like my experience, then it's not valid. Problem in the New England churches with conversion that led then to the halfway covenant because if you didn't go through all the proper steps, which came out of a genuine piety, 
But if you lack the proper steps or the proper amount of time in each stage, then you didn't have any right to think you were converted. So I guess it's always dangerous, and that's what Satan's best at, is taking that which is good, and because we're sinners, getting us to pervert it. I think in our modern day and age, too, you hear a lot of people, usually outside of the Reformed world, who express decision-making or or things of like nature in terms of, the Lord told me to do mm-hmm. this, or yeah. I just had a sense from God, and... And then usually what attends that is a complete neglect of the ordinary means of grace as God's appointed means of grace to us. Right. And so they might have a, a good ritual, so to speak, of morning devotions in the Word and, and praying in some manner and, and seeking for impressions and feelings from God, which is where it starts to go off the rails, but they have no clear commitment to life lived out in, in the corporate life of the church. Mm. Um, or attendance upon the means of grace, or no clear understanding of what the Lord's Supper really is for the Christian, right? Um, or how to improve upon one's baptism, or the importance of praying with others, and and the role of spiritual gifts and what that means. Yeah, I can see the Lone Ranger approach, downplaying corporate worship, downplaying the sacraments, downplaying the prayer meeting. You know, I've got my walk with the Lord, and that could have come out of a good foundation but it pretty quickly went in a bad direction yeah i mean it can unravel in so much foolishness or opposition to the corporate life of the people of god and by foolishness i mean the person who uses his or her expressions of piety so-called as an excuse to avoid caring for himself or herself right and managing the affairs of his household well or you know the list can go on also connected would be the distinction between revival and revivalism because the Mm. same people that are critical of piety are also critical of genuine revival but once again revivalism was an attempt by men often with a very much of a pietistic strain to create revival by creating Uh, by moving from what would have been the consequences of true revival and seeking by doing the consequences to promote revival. Or early, early, I mean, last hundred years in the South, uh, all little churches uh, had revival meetings. And they maybe started out meeting for revival, but eventually we're having revival. Uh, Come to our revival. So whereas true revival gets a bad name then from this, it's one of the reasons we're addressing that at our conference, is that it always produces... Uh, vibrant church life and church growth and piety. That's right. Now, how would you then respond to a true pietist who comes into your church or whom you meet and have an opportunity to disciple in some manner? I think basically like anyone else, I'd move slowly. I'd get on the basics of who God is, uh, the Spirit, uh, our dependence upon Christ, get into the experimental Calvinism, which is simply another word for true piety, and try to patiently let them get the taste of that genuine thing and out of their shell. In historical perspective, this might be helpful. One strength of the early pietists of the 18th century in Germany was a real emphasis on submitting themselves to the Word of God. Now, they typically did that in small group, even in-home Bible studies, again, divorced from the ordinary means of grace, divorced from the church, in part because the institutional church was uh, becoming and growing increasingly rationalistic and cold. Right. 
Um, and so you can't fault them too much for that. But one thing that a true pietist, if they're truly pietistic, should should admit is um, an adherence to and deference to the Word of God. And so go to the Scriptures. Amen. Go to the sources as yep. you're discipling them, again, um, with gentleness and with meekness and love. So that's a great question. If there are follow-up questions question. on this, and, and particularly how to respond to true pietism wherever it's found, even in your own heart, uh, feel free to send in follow-up questions. Okay, our next question um, is again from Anonymous, and it's a pair of questions or issues dealing with sexual attraction, and namely uh, one of the hot-button issues of the day, same-sex attraction. May someone who has struggled with the sin of same-sex attraction have sinned by not pursuing or even realizing the existence of opportunities the Lord gave him or her in the past to seek a relationship with a Christian of the opposite sex? In other words, are there single Christians who have sinned doubly by firstly entertaining temptation to same-sex attraction and secondly by not now being married and bringing up children? What, if anything, can be done about this when opportunities have passed? I don't know that a person has necessarily sinned by not pursuing a relationship uh, with the uh, opposite uh, sex, um, but they need to, or perhaps this person has dealt with the problems of the sin of same-sex attraction. I don't think it's ever too late, though. I think if a person... Uh, has done so and desires to be married, then they pray about that and they prepare themselves uh, to be uh, a godly husband or wife and to put themselves in the way of meeting uh, g- godly uh, Christians. The uh, I mean, closely connected to that, I guess, is the second question, and maybe I can intertwine them. Same-sex attraction is wrong, but is having no attraction opposite sex also wrong? No, it's not. So uh, Christ and Paul both teach that there are celibates um, from birth and that although that is a minor position uh, in terms of Scripture, it is a true position. There's others that will pursue celibacy for the sake of the kingdom and they don't have any great uh, attraction, uh, the kind that Paul would describe in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's why I can't really say in answer to the first question that the person sinned by not pursuing or realizing the existence of opportunities that God gave him or her. That person maybe genuinely is not attracted at this point to a person of the opposite sex. That's not their sin. Their sin's going to be uh, an improper attraction to the purpose of the same sex. And since this questioner recognizes the sin of that, that's the sin that they seek to put to death. Uh, they don't artificially pursue marriage. If God creates in them a desire for marriage uh, as well as a desire for a person of the opposite sex, then they ought to pursue that. But not to feel guilty if they don't have that as long as they've dealt with their problem of same-sex attraction. What, if anything, can be done when this op- when opportunities have passed? Well, we never know if opportunities have passed uh, Pastor Groff and I have a friend who's 80 years old and been a bachelor all his life and just got married. And um, they seem to be very happily married. So uh, God's sovereign in his plan. And so don't, if you desire to be married, 
then don't think that opportunity is the past. But as I've said, prepare yourself for marriage. Put yourself in the way to meet, if you're a man, a godly woman, or a woman, a godly man, and, and pray about it. And, and use Christian friends uh, to help you meet somebody. So don't ever think that opportunities have passed because you initially went down uh, a wrong road. That's an encouraging word, Dr. Piper, and I appreciate how you put that so pastorally and holding out hope to those who are struggling with this life-dominating sin and and oftentimes deeply vexing sin that strikes at the core of who we are, at least in uh, in the modern world, uh, how we conceive of ourselves. Um, It looks like there are some additional questions tied into this. Why don't you just take those and run with them, Dr. Piper? How can one learn to be attracted to the opposite sex in a right way? What does it mean to be naturally attracted to the opposite sex at the same time, not sin. So I've puzzled this, and Zach and I have talked a little bit about it even earlier this afternoon. Um, I think that any time a man is attracted to a man out of anything but uh, a godly masculine friendship, um, that's wrong. I think that a man may not be, as I've said, you may not be attracted to a person of the opposite sex, and I don't know if you can learn to be attracted to the opposite sex, you might be truly uh, have the gift of celibacy. So you pray about it, and if God uh, brings a, rather than keeping it theoretical, what will happen is God will bring that particular person into your life, and suddenly, oh, you know, I I really would enjoy being with him or her. I think I could enjoy being married to them, and it'll happen just like that. You've had no previous inclinations. Um, And so you just pray about it. You can't develop what God's not given to you, but you stay open to what God brings into your life. And then what does it mean to be naturally attracted to the opposite sex, but at the same time not sin? Well, I think I started on that. So it must be an attraction for a good male or female friendship, men with men, women with women, that would not have any overtones or suggestions of anything else. Now, of course, that's the same way. Um, if I have a uh, a friendship with a woman, I must always be in the context with my wife because I'm married. But if I weren't married, uh, then to develop those friendships is another way to see what God might do. And so to be friends with people of the opposite sex um, could be a way that you would um, also begin to meet someone that you actually cared about a great deal. So there's a difference between same-sex lust and heterosexual lust. Now, both are sin, but as the larger catechism says, they're aggravations of sin. So the same-sex lust comes out of a perversion of character, whereas heterosexual lust does not come out of the perversion of character, but it can become a perversion of a natural appetite. And that would be then the, uh, one of the differences. Thank you, Dr. Piper. And there's obviously much more that can be said and has been said, particularly in Reformed denominations and especially the PCA over the last few years. And though those debates are winding down, the issue is certainly still a live one. And so if you have follow-up questions, please submit them, 
and we'd be happy to address them. Or at least Dr. Piper would be happy to address them, and I'm happy to sit here no, and you to do. listen. You're your partner. <laughs> um, we have a question from longtime listener Virginia Canuto, and it's an exegetical question dealing with um, Hebrew in the book of Exodus. She says, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the word minister, or what we translate as minister in Exodus 39.26, has the same meaning as that found in the word uh, rendered in Exodus 38, verse 8, where Moses describes what the women were doing at the entrance to the tent of the presence of God. In your opinion, what are they really doing before they get in the temple? So I guess there are a couple issues here teasing out the meaning of that word right. in various contexts, and then also answering that the, the pointed question of, all right, what were these women right. doing at the entrance to the Well, let's read the, the two tabernacle. verses first. All right. Exodus 38, 8, this is in the construction of the tabernacle. Moreover, he made the labor of bronze with its base of bronze from mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And in 39, 26, referring to the priest, that they were to have these bells of gold with pomegranates in, in between on the hem, alternating a bell and a pomegranate all around on the hem of the robe for the service, <coughs> just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So you're right, the two words service, uh, but the general meaning of the word service is worship. And both of these entities are involved in worship. But the worship in which they were involved was quite different. So the priest worship, obviously, and this refers particularly to <coughs> the Day of Atonement when he goes into the Holy of Holies. And his service is bringing the blood of the sacrifice, sprinkling it uh, on the mercy seat. The women uh, at the court, the entrance, they could not go in uh, Side the well, even a, a layman could not go inside the holy place either. Uh, but first off, note that the women are noted here not for what they were doing, but for their offering. So they took their very expensive bronze mirrors and donated those to be used uh, for the uh, uh, furnishings of the labor. Now we don't know exactly. In the same way, the women followed Christ and ministered to Him. Our Miriam led the women in singing praises at the Red Sea. These women would easily have assisted with the Levites. They could have been washing dishes, uh, preparing uh, uh, food or whatever. Uh, we don't know what they were doing, but they were devoted uh, in a special way uh, to serving the Lord. One of the clearest examples we have that is more succinct would be Anna and Luke. And so she was in the temple praying and fasting. So she couldn't be in the temple itself. She was in the temple precincts. But she, they gave her a place to live there. And she was devoted to praying and fasting and seeking the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though it's the same word, it does not have the same um, immediate Connotation, Much in the same way, Phoebe is called a servant of the church in Syncria. Syncria. And it's the same word for deacon. But it doesn't mean that she was a deacon or a deaconess. There's only so many words that we have. And that word that can be used of a Christian ministering, 
Uh, it can be used of a deacon ministering. And so here, uh, the women obviously, because we compare Scripture with Scripture, these women were doing nothing liturgical in terms of anything that a Levite or a priest would do. But they did have a role in praising God, singing there at the court of the temple, and sacrificially taking their possessions and giving them to the worship of the Lord. Yes, and I think they are two different Hebrew words. I, th- oh, I, took, I looked it up very briefly. Um, I mean, they have they have overlapping meaning. They both refer to service right. and and ministry broadly speaking. But I think the one in thirty eight eight is is a, a word that it's used twice there in the verse that refers broadly to assembling, even for war, and frequently uh, you know worship functions or serving the Lord is cast in martial terms. Whereas the verse in thirty nine twenty six is a different word. <laughs> Um, or the the verb in thirty nine twenty six is a different word, um, lasharet, which is um, more restricted to uh, ministry as such. But in thirty eight eight, I think the word there is uh, is hatsavot, uh, and then uh, and then savo, um, but it's that root. Unless I'm looking at the wrong word. No, you're right. It is hot so. Savot. I think there are two different. Words, though they're related. I mean, at the door of the temple of meeting. Okay, so um, they were amassed there, Mm -hmm. um, which is the idea of the uh, Hasavot. But in the English translation, there is this uh, use of the word service to render or translate both words. In 38.8, it's from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and then in Thirty-nine twenty-six. It's a different word that's translated "robe for the service." Well, and that's a very important translation Moses. of the English in uh, uh, thirty-eight-eight. If that's the case, um, I think I think service for thirty-eight-eight is okay. If the word in thirty-nine twenty-six would have been rendered as ministry at least in light of the broader context there between the two chapters, mm-hmm. because the women really are functioning in. a qualitatively distinct manner in a different way uh, in serving the Lord than the uh, the priest there. Yeah, the word in, uh, I'm glad you, I never got to 39 today when I started working on this, is actually the word used for liturgical acts, yep. shroth. Uh, uh, so clearly a, a different term. So that is liturgical acts performed by a priest. The other are going to be more general acts of uh, corporate worship. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's important. But yep. you know, this is why we always appeal to the original languages. And that's word right. studies don't solve every issue. Um, but in this case, one term is technical and the other one's broader. Right. Um, obviously, we all serve the Lord. We all minister with gladness in our hearts. We all worship the Lord with joy and thanksgiving. Um, but God does set apart uh, certain folks for particular functions in ordination. And uh, though the priesthood has been fulfilled in Christ, ordination continues and it's restricted to qualified men in, in our day and age. And I know this is an issue um, in even Reformed churches around the world. Uh, the the, the hot-button issue, the pressing issue of, okay, what is it that men are called to do? What is it that women are called to do? Is it two different sets of uh, callings? You know, is, is it egalitarian? Is it equal between the two? Um, 
So if you have follow-up questions on that, please submit them. But thank you for the question, Virginia. And this came in last minute today. And so uh, Dr. Pipe is a good sport. I started on my phone (laughs) and never followed up is what happened. I was... Had a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a good sport anyway. Uh, being able to take a question on the fly, we appreciate it. Uh, well, I'm glad you checked the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. We're going to handle just a couple more questions uh, this evening in the in the time that remains. We probably won't do a full hour because we do have a session meeting coming up, um, which is why we're able to get together today. But I, we want to take a couple of questions that have been sent in by Isaiah Groom and that have been sitting on the back burner for quite some time. The first one uh, deals with images of Christ versus symbols of Christ. Really, what is the difference between a symbol of Christ and an image of Christ? Does it have to do with the face, details, or nothing at all? I recall in a previous episode you talked about symbols being acceptable but not images. Can you clarify? Yes. So a symbol is, a word is a symbol, uh, Isaiah. Uh, letters are symbols. And so the word Christ communicates something symbolically. That's what language does. And so when we say that symbols are acceptable, we recognize that things that signify a divine person are simply another way of uh, saying the word. Whereas to depict uh, a physical uh, image of one of the divine persons in the Godhead uh, then would be a violation of the uh, second commandment. Now, John Murray who was the strictest of the strict on this issue, actually said that if you had a Bible story and you used stick figures, uh, that those would be symbols because there's no visible representation. There's nothing that anybody could ever, in their imagination, think of Christ through the symbol of a stick figure. I think that, that makes good sense. Uh, the, the triangle on the front of the Trinity hymnal is a symbol of the Trinity, but it doesn't depict the Trinity. It's like a word that means uh, Trinity. So I think that that's, it's a pretty easy difference for me. Now, one of the discussions we've had in Presbytery is that there are these children's Bible story books that I've not seen them, but in them there's no way that a child could get a visual impression about Christ. I don't know if they're shady or shady. Do you know, Zach? You have children. Yes, it's like silhouettes. Okay. And so some of the, the more recent ones put out by Crossway, they make an attempt to to avoid the breaking the uh, second commandment on this issue by in a predominantly pictorial book by representing Christ in, in silhouette form or in kind of whited out kings seating on a throne, but there's no distinct figures. It's kind of between... The, cartu- uh, stick the, the stick figure and a cartoon Jesus like you would have in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, and so, you know, I struggle with that myself. My wife and I, obviously it's a, a pressing thing for us. We have small children in the home. We get these books. And so um, do we put our censorship sticker over it <laughs> or See, do we not? My problem with it goes a bit deeper in that very fine uh, lengthy piece that I distributed um, by the guy against pictures of Christ, that anything today that depicts Jesus only in his human nature is a lie, Uh, because he was always the God-man, the hypostatic person. And so we're communicating error. We can never communicate that other reality 
except with words, or a symbol, again, a stick figure is a word, but uh, particularly we have eras in the early church called Nestorianism that basically made him a human person that received as a reward something of a divine person, or Eutychianism that said he was essentially divine, but it's the first one in particular that um, overemphasis on the human nature of Christ, and so that's why I, I, I'm going to leave it as a matter of conscience for people, but that's why I pull back from even the uh, silhouette type forms because the purpose is to communicate to children this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Whereas in the Lord's Supper, which is the authorized uh, portrait of Christ, uh, we're always very clear that this is the God-man. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Uh, we refer to you to Westminster Larger Catechism 109 and send us in any follow-up questions. <laughs> Our next uh, question as we work down the list here is, what do we mean when we speak of the whole counsel of God? What are some neglected areas of the whole counsel of God? I've always understood this as just meaning the full Bible, all yeah, 66 all books the of truths, the canon. All the truths of the Bible. I, uh, one time when I was pastoring in Houston, the elders had asked me to preach in Romans, and I'd been in Romans for, I think, a year, and the very elder that wanted me to do that said, you know, you... Uh, you sure are are going awfully slow. I says, well, you're the, well, yeah, I know, but so I tell you, well, let's do this before the next session meeting. I'll do it. I said, I'm going to take the confession of faith. I'm going to go through there and mark how many different doctrines in one way or another I touched on in these first few chapters of Romans. And I, the confession of faith is a very good uh, thing for us. The Apostles' Creed is another one. So, uh, we have good matrices by which we can judge. Are we teaching uh, all that God teaches in a biblical balance? So one of the advantages of preaching through books is you're doing it in a biblical balance. We all tend to have our hobby horses, and it's not really preaching the whole counsel of God if you're preaching all the doctrines, but you're emphasizing the minor doctrines and neglecting the greater doctrines. And so we have to keep a biblical balance in that as well. So Paul talks about that in Acts 20, that um, he did not withhold anything from them. He, he, he taught them the whole counsel of God. And so you're right, 66 books of the Bible summarized in the great creeds of the Christian church and particularly in the Westminster Confession. That's a good answer grounded in uh, a biblical understanding of truth and an understanding of the truth of the Bible as it is represented to us and summarized for us in the great confessional documents. Um, and they are powerful tools for ensuring that you are preaching the whole counsel of God and teaching such. Another thing that's helpful is when you have morning and evening services, preach New Testament texts in Amen. one, Old Testament texts in the other, and you also get twice as many sermons in a year. So you're able to, to cover uh, other things being equal. Um, of course, the one thing when you do that is you need material. to alternate. You do need to alternate. Uh, right. <laughs> and not just always preach New Testament in the morning, New Testament at night. Yes, that's Because right. unfortunately we live in an age when some percentage of the congregation will never hear an Old Testament sermon. That's right. That's right. Very good. Okay, next question. Is the qualification of teaching with regards to eldership the same as the gift of teaching spoken of elsewhere in the New Testament? So is the qualification the same as the gift? Yes. An elder must be apt to apt teach. Apt to teach. But does That's he need to be the question is. especially but gifted to no, teach? No, okay. He must have the gift of teaching. 
because I think that's an elder gift in uh, Romans chapter 12. But as Paul teaches us through Titus, that does not mean always a gift of public teaching. He might have the gift of private teaching. He can come and uh, give that admonishment and, and be a biblical counselor. So I don't take the gift of teaching requiring all only public teaching. But the ability to teach is the ability to take the truth of Scripture and uh, decipher it and then communicate it in an intelligible way to another person. You can do that one-on-one -on -one as well. So all elders need to be able to do that one-on-one. -on -one. Some elders will also have the gift to do it publicly. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Piper. If there's a follow-up on that, please send it in. Uh, Dr. Piper's whole life in ministry is dedicated to helping men to discern whether or not they're gifted to teach and to preach and to equip them to uh, sharpen those skills and gifts. Well, I think at this point we should close up our episode today. It's been about 40 minutes. We thank you for uh, going through it with us. Uh, but we are so thrilled to be doing this together at Antioch. And again, if you'd like to submit a question, you can do so by contacting us at info at antiochpca.com or by filling out the, the question submission form on our website at antiochpca.com slash podcast. Until next time, may God bless you, and we look forward to meeting with you again. Thank you for listening to this edition of the podcast of Antioch Presbyterian Church. To submit your questions for the next Faith and Practice segment, please visit antiochpca.com slash podcast. For more information about Antioch, visit us on our website at antiochpca.com.